Welcome to episode 7 of No Coaster Needed. I'm Jacob McCourt. This show is about casual conversations between people of different ages, backgrounds, and from different walks of life. My hope is that the show feels like two friends catching up at a pub with a drink. It's a pub, so you don't need a coaster. Get it? The entirety of the first season of the show is about people with ties to the Rose City. People with ties to Windsor, Ontario. On today's show, I sat down with my brother, Jarrett McCourt. He is the principal tuba at the New World Symphony in Miami, Florida. Jarrett's playing was recently called Warm, Romantic, and Seamless by the South Florida Classical Review. He has performed with a number of different high-level ensembles, can be heard on several recently released CDs, and has either won or advanced at 10 competitions in the past five years. Most notably, he won the top prize in the brass category of the Orchestre Symphonique de Montréal's prestigious Standard Life Competition in 2014, becoming the first tubist to do so in the competition's 75-year history. Jared is also currently on faculty at New World School of the Arts at Miami-Dade College. We recorded this episode in our parents' basement. On the show, we talk about how Jarrett got into music, what he took away from his time working at a crisis hotline, his TSA struggles, being a Canadian in Miami Beach, and all of the anecdotes in between. This is No Coaster Needed, intimate conversations with incredible people. Tell me what your first exposure to music was. I started taking piano lessons in seventh grade. Okay. And then I was given a trombone the summer before ninth grade. Mm-hmm. And then I was given a tuba the summer before 10th grade. Okay. So that's sort of my chronology. How, when you first got a tuba or when you first got an instrument, what was the most striking about like starting to play music like what what surprised you most with starting to play music i'll always remember and this is uh i was sort of thinking about this very recently um we went to a wedding uh the family in i think 11th grade 11th grade sometime i think judging by your face i think you know where i'm going with this um there's a wedding of uh actually it might have been even further along Um, maybe it was close to now, but regardless, we went to a wedding. I was having a good time and whatever. And I guess I was sort of leaving. And then I saw somebody who, uh, I used to know the mother of someone who was in your grade. Mm -hmm. Um, and she sort of asked like what I was doing. And I sort of explained her that. And she sort of looked at me and she was like, you know, I'm so glad you found music because when you were in high school, you just looked like you had no idea what you were doing. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's really oh, condescending. That's a, that's a backhanded compliment there. Um, but it was true. Honestly, before I found specifically before I started to get into playing tuba in like 11th grade when I really got into it, um, people would ask me what I was going to do in college or university. And I was kind of like, can I go to Best Buy? <laughs> Cause you worked at Best Buy like for a lot of years when you were in high school and university, right? Yeah. And it was, for a long time I was kind of like, maybe I should just do this because I suck at math and I suck at science. You and, were a good writer though. And I could write, but there were people that were better writers than me. Okay. You know? um, so Music was kind of that one thing that I was like, oh, this is maybe something that I could do. And it wasn't until further along that I realized that having a career in music was extremely difficult and um, just very precarious. Who was the first person that said this is a possible career path that you can take? We had a party here. Um, I forget what it was for, but I think it was maybe a Christmas party or a summer party. And... Mm -hmm. um, uh, our high school music teacher, David Hill was very close to the family and he came and I remember we were standing at the bar and I sort of was just like, you know, flippantly, I was sort of like, do you think I can do this? And he was just like, yeah. And I was like, okay. So then I was like, I guess I can do this. 
And it's sort of funny. I went to this tuba conference yesterday. Tuba conference. We can talk about that later. <laughs> anyway, I went to this tuba conference yesterday in Toronto and my undergrad teacher was there. Um, and since the last time he saw me, I've made some very large career moves, at least like um, big steps towards uh, having a you know, sustainable professional orchestral job. Um, and there were several times in my undergrad at Western that he would look at me and he would be like, so you want to be a professional tuba player? My private tuba teacher <laughs> in my undergrad would look at me on a fairly regular basis and he would be like, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> this is your teacher who's encouraging, he's supposed to be encouraging you and he's like, he has this career. He's the <laughs> one who is doing what I want to be doing and he's like, are you sure you want to do this? So, so back up, back up. How did you end up going or choosing Western from high school? So you picked up the tuba in grade 11 and that's kind of the instrument that stuck for you. Yeah. You didn't tuba for two years how did you end up deciding from going from Tecumseh, going from coming from Windsor, and then going up to London to study at Western? The Windsor music program is very, very small, mm -hmm. um, and you know, actually, for, for me specifically at the time, they didn't even have a, a teacher for tuba at the University of Windsor. At the University of Windsor, so that wasn't really an option for me. Um, so I applied to Western and Laurier and University of Ottawa. Those three schools and you know, they all sort of were good in many ways, but Western was sort of the one that felt the best. Um, Western is widely known to have the best student experience. So I sort of went there and it like felt good. And the teacher was also very enthusiastic at the time to have me there. And it was a very generous financial offer, which is sort of like the driving force behind many of my decisions of my life who gives me the most money literally <laughs> um so that's why i chose to go to western um and then spent four years there mm -hmm. um and i went into western thinking i was going to be a high school music teacher i started because you don't actually choose a major until like a concentration in music until your third year so the like first two teaching years. performance composition theory history you don't actually choose a specific concentration until your third year. And then for the first two years, you're just sort of floating around as a, they say like a B must a student bachelor of musical arts. And then you spec you specialize in, you know, like the ones I just said, education, performance, composition, history, and, um, theory. Um, and I remember taking this music education class and there were a lot more people that were, in that class that were very, very enthusiastic about teaching high school band. And I liked that, but I also really liked playing the tuba. Um, and I'll tell a little story, final paper they were writing for that class. Um, and I forget what I had to write about. And, um, I get it back and I don't have a grade. And my professor is like, come to my office immediately. Oh no. So I come in with the paper. I'm like, Hey professor, like, how's it going? Like, <laughs> can you explain this note? And she was just like, did you know that you plagiarized 80% of this paper? <laughs> did you even realize that you did it? Well, no, like frankly, they use this plagiarism software yep. that I think is hundred percent bogus. And what I think happened was the format that they were using to cite stuff. Mm -hmm. They would have us submit block quotes inside of the, the paper. So I think that's where it was getting most of the plagiarism stuff yep. from. And she was like a first year professor. And I think I was sort of the scapegoat for her. So she was like, okay, tell you what, I'll give you a 70 and that'll be it. Because 70 was like the the mark that you needed to continue on in the honors program. So yeah. that was basically like getting a 50 in a sense. Okay. Um, at that point, I was just like, I don't like this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to, at that point, put all my eggs in the performance basket. So you actually, you have to um, 
audition again for the performance program, even though you've already auditioned for the school. So I passed that. And then I did two years in performance. And it was great. It's basically you go to school and you take one class and you practice the rest of your time. Mm-hmm. And I would practice. Mm, that was the most I'd ever practiced. I was probably practicing seven or eight hours a day. Um, so I'd probably wake up seven o'clock, go to the gym, practice for three hours, eight thirty to eleven thirty, go to class, and then practice for a couple hours at night. Uh, or in the afternoon and at night, but I would always try to get in about seven or eight hours in the day, which is a lot for a brass player Mm -hmm. specifically because a lot of the muscles in our face get tired very easily. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas piano players, vocalists, string players can practice for as long as they want because the muscles in our face are a lot stronger and a lot weaker than for example, your arm muscle, if you're a cellist or a violinist. So um, brass players can't really practice for that long, but I had just like done it for so long that I, my face was basically just steel. Um, Were you practicing that much in high school or is that something that just kind of started when you went to university? I don't think so. I don't remember practicing a lot in high school. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you remember hearing tuba a lot in high school, but I don't remember practicing a lot. What made you practice so much more in university? Did you feel you had to catch up or did you feel that you just, that's what you needed to get through the material? No, no, no. So Western, I was very much, um, as it has been expressed to me and sort of, now I'm realizing it. I was very much big fish, small pond at, at Western. I was kind of, there were six tuba players in my studio. I was the only performance major. I was the only one that was focused on playing a lot. I'd play all the time and everybody sort of widely regarded me as the most serious tuba player in the studio. And I just practiced because that's what I wanted to do. And I felt like accomplished at the end of the day, if that's what I was doing a lot, I graduated and then went through a bunch of grad school auditions and then landed at the university of Michigan, Mm -hmm. which is, um, widely regarded as probably the best music school at a public university in the United States. And when I got there, I was very much like little guppy in the Atlantic ocean Mm -hmm. type thing. Uh, we had, we would have these auditions at the beginning of each semester basically to place us in like each of the bands and the orchestras at the schools. Mm-hmm. There were nine tuba players and I was ranked eighth out of ninth. They would, they would put you on paper and rank you compared yeah. to others. And you know, the, the best, what? Oh yeah. This happens all the time. And the best tuba player would end up in the best ensemble and the worst tuba players would end up in the worst ensemble. And they would actually say like, you guys are the worst musicians you're going to be together. Well, I mean, you know, an audition is very much a snapshot of where you are exactly at that moment in your development and on that day, what's going on in your head, how you know this repertoire. So it's important not to regard an audition as, you know, a larger cumulative picture of who you are as a musician, more so just a snapshot of like where you are on that day. Mm -hmm. So on that day, I was the second worst tuba player in the studio coming from being the best tuba player in the studio at Western. So that was shocking. Mm -hmm. But so that was shocking. And that's when I really started working hard because I really felt like I needed to catch up. And my master's program was only two years. And that's when I realized like, Oh crap. Like if I want to make this happen, then I need to be the best person in the studio. Mm -hmm. Um, Because obviously there's only one tuba per orchestra. So not only do I need to be the best in the studio, I need to be the best in the country at any given point. So in every studio and then also better than everybody who's older than me. Um, I was talking with this one guy, this up in Milwaukee last week and I was talking to the CEO of the Milwaukee symphony, um, who was former trumpet player, taught trumpet for a long time. And he was talking to me about how he talked to one of his students one time and they calculated this particular student went to Indiana university, which is the second largest music program in the United States. He was talking to me about how they calculated like how many trumpet players in four years would make it into a professional orchestra. So at any given time, they have about 40 trumpet players in the studio per year. And this is the second best program in the United States. Second largest. Second largest. Okay. So there are probably, 800 to a thousand students at the school. The largest is university of North Texas in Denton outside of Dallas. Um, and they calculated and they said that one 
trumpet player out of every four years at Indiana University would make it. So that's how competitive this is. I've heard that, I don't want to say more competitive, but becoming a professional musician in an orchestra is on par, if not more difficult, than becoming an Olympic athlete. So that's sort of what was going through my head a lot at Michigan. Okay. I'm going to put a pin in the Michigan thing. Go ahead. Uh, and I want to ask you about how you got involved with student life at Western. Cause I feel like in addition to doing stuff with the music program at Western, you were heavily involved in student life at Western as well. Yeah. So I was student leader. They call them softs at mm-hmm. Western. And that was really important to me because it got me outside of the practice room and it got me learning how to be a normal person. <laughs> um, whereas most musicians my age spend a lot of their time in the practice room learning how to play their instruments really well, but when you put them on a stage and you tell them to talk about the music they're performing, it's very difficult for them because they don't know how to communicate using words. They only know how to communicate using their fingers and their voices and their instruments. So mentoring was a huge part of my time at Western. And um, it was really rewarding, but it also, like I said, it got me out of the practice room and it got me doing something else. And, you know, so much so that I was considering a career in student life for a long time, mm-hmm. student services, support services. Yeah, can, uh, counseling, like student, like working in a guidance office, yeah, essentially, like right? Career counseling, academic counseling. Yeah, you were thinking about your master's of ed for a while, right? Yeah, post-music master's, mm-hmm. but then some stuff, other stuff happened. Um, but yeah, that was crazy rewarding, and um, it's a very special thing that Western has the sort of like very involved student mentorship that goes on from the minute that that student comes in for orientation day. And if you're a good student leader, it goes until, you know, the student leader leaves school or whenever the sort of, um, relationship dissolves. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't talk to a lot of people that I went to undergrad with, very often anymore because I'm a couple circles removed from Western. So mm-hmm. I've, I've been through masters and now I live in Florida and you know, everybody has sort of different stuff. And most of my friends moved and stayed in Canada, whereas I don't live in Canada anymore. So it's tough to stay in touch with those people, but it's something that I will remember very fondly for a long time. Um, what do you find the most important piece um, is to be a good mentor? Cause you've obviously, you were mentored and then you mentored others. Mm. So what do you feel like the, the most important piece to be a good mentor is? I feel like most of the world is really bad at listening. I feel like a lot of people listen with the intent of responding instead of listen with the intent of listening to the words that come out of people's mouths. Um, and active listening is something that's really important to mentoring because you're showing the person immediately that they're being heard and then you're giving them a tangible solution to what they're dealing with. So for example, if I come to you and I'm like, Hey Jacob, like I'm really stressed about X, Y, and Z. Then active listening, you would come out and you would be like, Hey, can you, why don't we talk about X? Like why is X making you feel like, the world is on fire. Exactly. Just like taking a part of what they said and then just sort of in an organic way, repeating it back to them just so that you know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I've carried um, along with my friendships, professional relationships, romantic relationships, everything. And um, I don't know. I just think that people at their core want to be heard. Everybody wants to be heard. Nobody wants to be ignored or not be listened to. So I think when someone comes to you with an issue, they are opening themselves up so much that they want to, they want you to listen to them. Mm -hmm. And I think you owe it to them to listen to them. Um, and I think that's sort of the biggest thing that I took away. Just that most people are bad listeners. And if I can try my best to make people feel heard, then I'm doing my part. 
were you so obviously you weren't rewarded monetarily for this um but can you think back to a moment where you had a situation where you went this has made it all worth it or you had someone come up to you and say something that you didn't expect and at that moment you felt this is totally all the hours i put in all the effort it makes it all worthwhile Mm. okay well this is kind of a roundabout it's all all truncated a little bit because it goes over several years but um so one thing that a lot of people don't know about me is that i worked for a suicide hotline sort of um for two years during my undergrad in london um and um i sort of worked at the graveyard shift because this particular crisis hotline was sort of lacking in employees at the time and i would go in for two to three days a week from midnight until sometimes 4 a.m oftentimes 3 a.m um and did it for two years and most people would call in and they would be pretty hysterical sometimes and you would sort of just need to talk them down and most of the time the conversation would end with them just sort of like hanging up on you or you sort of just having to be like okay i'm gonna let you go now i just need to make sure that you're not gonna harm yourself tonight but then sort of towards the end of my time there i had this girl call in and she was super calm talking sort of like we are now um and she expressed to me that she was a closeted lesbian at the time and her parents were very intolerant of that and had basically expressed to her that she would be kicked out of the house if she were to come out as gay. We talked about this a lot and um, I sort of had a lot of sympathy, empathy for her. And we got so close that I actually like shared my work schedule with her, which is something that I shouldn't have done. And if anybody from that hotline is listening right now, then... I probably won't ever be able to get a job there again, which is probably okay. But um, I shared my work schedule with her because I just wanted her to know that she always had somebody because we sort of became friends after a little while, but I never met her in person. I have no idea what she looks like. Um, And then one of our last conversations, she sort of said, thank you for being a friend and being close. And then I would sort of, I don't want to say compulsively, but I would periodically read through the obituaries just to see if anybody that I spoke to had decided to end their life after I spoke to them. This girl's name was Brenda, and I, after our last conversation, I saw her name in the obituaries. So she had taken her life after I felt like I had a pretty significant impact on her. Um, and this was challenging. Um, so much so that I decided to quit after that because it was just, it was a big burden to carry. And I had invested so much emotion in that, that I couldn't not take that home with me. So fast forward until last year, my friend, his name is Zach Manzi. He, um, ran this concert at new world symphony, which is the orchestra that I play for in Miami. Basically the orchestra gives you bunch of money to put on your own concert and they're like take the orchestra take everything you can design your own concert and he ran this concert super interesting basically he chose six people in the orchestra and they chose six pieces that meant a lot to them and then he would put them in front of the orchestra and be like okay explain why this piece means a lot to you and there was a piece and sort of uh came into my life i went to go see the toronto symphony play it shortly after this whole thing happened um Tchaikovsky is a very famous Russian composer. Probably know him from Sleeping Beauty, um, Swan Lake. He composed that. Nutcracker? Nutcracker, exactly. Uh-huh. Good for you. Thank you. Um, and his sixth symphony is really famous um, because it doesn't follow the standard symphonic trajectory. Normally, like a symphony is four movements. It normally goes like fast fast slow fast or fast slow slow fast the the important thing is that the last movement is normally sort of triumphant and fast and leaves people feeling energized when they leave the hall this symphony ends very slowly so it's sort of like fast 
a little bit slower, a little bit slower, very slow, sort of a big sort of diminishing effect. Um, and a lot of people saw this as his suicide note because he was dealing with, you know, arguably this, there's some letters that were written at the time that he was a closeted homosexual for most of his life as well. Um, anyway, regardless, historically, whatever this piece came into my life and Zach was like, I want you to talk on this concert, choose a piece. And I was like, obviously going to talk about this symphony. It's his sixth symphony. It's his last symphony. Um, and the concert's coming up whenever I'm like writing my speech and it's very similar to what I'm saying right now. It might be the same thing just from what I remember. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to have to like talk about this in front of everybody I know. And I've like barely ever told anybody this whole story. I didn't know about it until very, very recently. Yeah. You had posted about it like uh, two or three months ago for about Let's Talk Day, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the first time I'd known about it. Um, yeah, and it was just, it was very impactful at the time. And it was sort of difficult for me to bring it up again. And I was sort of having trouble making it not seem like matter of fact because I was trying to distance myself emotionally from it. And I was just like, I'm going to go balls deep emotionally. I'm just going to like paste this against the wall. I'm going to try to at least. Um, I didn't say it in the, like normally a dress rehearsal for a concert. It's like you run the whole concert. So like everybody was saying what they were going to say. And then I get up for my part and I just, I'm like, okay, like I'm not going to say what I'm going to say because I'm saving it for tonight, like in front of everybody. And they're all like, okay, like way to be dramatic, Jared. Like, what are you going to do tonight? Like pull your pants down or something. (laughs) I didn't pull my pants down. (laughs) Um, anyway, so it gets to the concert. I can show you the video later. Um, but I said my thing and they were just like, you could hear a pin drop when I finished. And the music that was created after that was like by far the best concert that I've ever played in. And it was just so good. I mean, I like people still talk about that particular piece being like, really in it because everybody was sort of in this like very you know emotional state of mind and they were making music from the heart and you know 90 people doing that that's like why people go to see orchestra concerts Mm -hmm. is because you know you can feel the physical energy you can feel the emotional energy coming off of the instruments anyway so after this was done i go backstage and these two girls in the cello section come up to me and they're just sobbing and they're like i can't believe that happened to you like and this was something that like care like uh, was stayed with me for a long time so much so that like several people in the orchestra came up to me after the fact and like were talking to me about you know emotional trips they'd gone through and like things that they'd they that had happened to them um after the concert like people were opening up to me about difficulties they that had come up in their lives and it was just crazy to see like when I opened myself up, everybody else was willing to be open. So I guess like to answer your question, like 10 minutes later, (laughs) the biggest thing that I can take away from all of these experiences is that just, if everyone was a little more open, I think it would fix a lot of the world's problems because then everybody else would feel like, it's okay to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And so many people are just so scared of being open and being vulnerable because they're scared of being hurt based mm-hmm. on past experiences or whatever, which is reasonable. We build walls, but that experience showed me that if we tear down those walls, then it can really be impactful and it can really make other people tear down their walls because they see how liberating it is when people tear down their walls. Yeah. Um, so, and even like when I posted that on Instagram, mm-hmm. like I had a ton the, of the tribute to Brenda. Yeah. And I had a bunch of people message me after the fact being like, that's really cool that you did that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that you did that. Mm-hmm. And, um, I didn't even know you worked for a suicide outline. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I did. you're listening to no coaster needed. This is a conversation with Jarrett McCourt. He is the principal tuba at the new world symphony in Miami, Florida. If you like what you've heard so far, consider posting your favorite episode on social media. It helps a lot. Now let's start again with Jarrett's options coming out of his master's program. 
what did you do to move yourself into a position where you would have better options coming out of your master's program? I just practiced a lot. Define a lot. Um, you said you were practicing seven or eight hours a day when you were doing your undergrad. Yeah. I mean, it was just with practicing an instrument, it's not the quantity, it's the quality. And I understood that, or I started to understand that in Michigan. And, you know, I put in less time in the practice room, but I was way more efficient with it. Um, and you know, I'd put in a lot of a couple hours in the morning and a couple hours at night. Um, but really I found that the more times that I was rejected from things, which happened a lot, um, you know, for summer festivals, summer opportunities and just, uh, schools down the line. Um, I can talk about when I was applying for doctorates the first time around, um, and how crazy that was. But, um, and then we had these pool auditions at school where we would have to compete against everybody in our studio. I would, I was being constantly told that I was not the best. And in order to get a job in an orchestra, you have to be the best. I was told many years ago that you can make it. Um, and there's a lot of very good people out there who do things like these because people want these because this is what makes people happy. Um, but there's room at the top, you know, there's not really room at the bottom because like that's sort of where people are getting employment and Mm -hmm. gainful employment. If you're the best, people are always going to say yes to you. So that was sort of inspiring for me to hear that. Okay. Um, and getting said no to that was, that was huge. Like I remember being, Oh, I was like, dang, you know, like I hate being told no, but I sort of always tried to, after I was said no to, I would, put my instrument away. I would go to bed and I would wake up the next day and be like, okay, why? This is applying for doctoral programs right when you were coming to your master's, right? Anything, you know, just like, um, sometimes people take hundreds of auditions before they get some kind of job. Um, and in retrospect, like I said, I learned so much more from the times that I was told no than the times that I was, told yes and i of course gained a lot of experience from the times that people said yes to me because i got to do the things that you know furthered my career but when people were like nah i was like okay well i need to figure out why now um and that's the times that i've made the most did you have an audition one time that marked you where it either went incredibly well or incredibly poorly and you just went wow i'm never going to do an audition like that again where you had an audition and it was so bad or the result was not what you wanted and you, it either changed your mindset or you always remembered it as like, Oh, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah. Several. I mean, like I would say every audition I take, I sort of walk away from it or when I'm walking out of the room, I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that again. Like there was one particularly, I think it was last year. Yeah. It was last year. It was in Seattle. Seattle symphony was having an audition. And I was really well prepared, um, felt really good about how I was playing, how I was sounding. I get into the hall and, um, one thing went wrong. Like in, we were playing maybe like seven excerpts and then the second excerpt out of seven, um, one thing went wrong and I detached mentally. Like I wasn't focused anymore. And then just from that point on, I couldn't get back on mentally um, cause you play them one after the other yeah, and you play them blind. Right. So the was, judges don't know who you are. Yeah. So I was candidate, I think 72 that day. Um, for one job. Yeah. Yeah. I <sighs> think there was 127 people. Who went oh that my job God. Over like three or four days. So I feel bad for those people that had to listen to 127 tuba players trying to get through these excerpts. Um, But yeah, so I detached mentally and it was just a train wreck from that. And I was just like playing too loud and I was really tense and I was trying to like muscle my way around the instrument. Um, and my breathing was off and it was just like bad. And I remember walking out and being like, wow, so much so that I didn't even wait for the results to come out. I just put my instruments away and I walked out because I was like, when you know, you know. Yeah. Um, and I remember that day because I had to fly out to Seattle and the audition was over several days. I finished the audition and I still had another like two or three days in Seattle before I flew back. Um, 
so I like turned my phone off for three days and I didn't talk to anyone for like three days. What'd you do for three days in Seattle? uh, I took a lot of walks. Mm -hmm. Um, I went for a lot of coffee. I had some really good cocktails. I ate a lot of macarons at Pike Place Market. There's Mm -hmm. this place that has really good macarons. I know the place. I forget what it's called. They've got a great display window with all their macarons. Yeah. It's like something French, but they taste really good. Anyway, I was just like trying to, you know detached from what just happened and like even i just took two professional auditions and um they went better than of course um seattle went because that was just the worst you just to, to get to a bit of a lighter point uh you travel with your tube a lot yeah and <laughs> you've had some nightmare situations with your tuba and traveling lots uh you travel with it now and it actually takes up a seat with you on the airplane right yeah so i fly with two you fly with two tubas. Yeah, I check one because it's uh, just under the size restrictions. And for, how big are tubas for people that may not know what the instrument looks like? So I have a, a large tuba that I use when I play in big orchestras or big bands, um, which is roughly 60 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably like four foot tall, right? Yeah, or th- you know, three and a half, three, three to four feet tall. And then I've got a smaller one that's about 35 pounds a lot smaller Mm -hmm. so that one falls under the weight and height restrictions so i can check it under the plane in a case and it's only 25 bucks but the other one if i was able to if i had to put it in a case it would be overweight and oversized 400 dollars one way oh so get a seat for it exactly because like a round trip seat is much less than that (laughs) i just look like a dumbass when i have a uh, two-minute seat yeah Um, (laughs) <laughs> I get a lot of stares. A lot of stewardesses often take their pictures of it because they're like, no. I have to post this on Facebook. <laughs> Do they get you in the picture with them? Like, they're like, hey, look at this stupid guy and his dumb too. Probably. I'm like most <laughs> of the time in the bag, like pretty drunk by this point. <laughs> because just flying with tubas gives me so much anxiety that oftentimes I need to take some kind of drug like a pill or something for anxiety before yeah. I go to the airport and I normally have like a one, gravel or something like a beta like a propanolol or like a beta blocker mm-hmm. um to calm myself down and then I have one to two like adult beverages before I go to the airport just to like bring myself wobbly down. pops as they as they're called in the business definitely <laughs> um so like I said most of the time at this point like stewardesses have dealt like they are taking pictures of my tuba and I'm like I have my arm around it and I'm like putting bunny ears over it <laughs> and I'm just like hey like go ahead and take a picture of this <laughs> um, I had a really funny situation that I just started telling people about because I um, it just stopped giving me PTSD so I'm finally able to talk about it without sort of like falling into some type of coma mm-hmm. um it was actually the Seattle audition that I was just talking about. It was just like top to bottom, a GD nightmare. Um, so, oh my God, I can't even. <laughs> anyway. So you can't, it's cool. Tuba is in the gig bag. Mm-hmm. It's on my back. I'm walking up to TSA. And I find that the best way to approach TSA with a tuba is just to be calm, not mad. And just to be very firm. And I, I know what to do. I know it's not going to fit in the belt where you put all your stuff. You just sort of like look at the person and be like, I need someone to give this a hand check. Mm-hmm. Like they need to take it back and then they look at it and they inspect it. It, it. It's fine. They do it all the time. Yep. So this time I decided for some odd reason to put a mute inside the bell of my tuba so that I could practice in the hotel room. Um... But like now I just practice in a hotel room and nobody says anything. So people are probably just like, who's that idiot? Like I'm just trying to sleep. Um, <laughs> so I put the mute in. And a mute is like a like a cork essentially for the top of your tuba, right? Yeah. And it just changes the sound of the instrument. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it asked for in a lot of uh, pieces. Um, so I put the mute in. So this guy, I'm just like, hey, can I get a hand check? And he's like, I don't know. I think it's going to fit in the belt. <laughs> And I'm just like, I'm looking at it, like even eyeballing it. I'm just like, it's not going to fit in the belt. Like in, in the x-ray machine. It's not going to fit in the x-ray <laughs> machine. Exactly. <laughs> He's like, oh, I think it's going to fit. I'm like, okay. So I take it out of the, the case 
And I'm just looking at him like it's not going to fit in the, in the x-ray machine. So he take, I put my tuba on the belt to go in the x-ray machine. It gets about two feet in and then this like loud beeping starts <laughs> and it gets stuck. <laughs> it was like the biggest I told you so moment. But, but you can't say I told you so because he's TSA. And oh, you can definitely at this point. <laughs> my $15,000 tuba is stuck in their million dollar x-ray machine. Like, this is like <laughs> the biggest retribution. Anyway, so I'm looking at him just sort of not saying anything and being like, what did I say? <laughs> just that I couldn't. Anyway. And also he put the mute in before the tuba. So that's stuck. Like both things are stuck inside the x-ray machine. This is just awful. Is there a huge line too? It's huge. And like it took them 45 minutes <laughs> to get this out, the mute and the tuba outside of the x-ray machine. How many people had to work on it too? Oh my God. This guy, he's like inside the x-ray machine trying to take the mute out. <laughs> trying to take my i took my tube out because i'm like you're not touching this like you've already been an, an idiot once today <laughs> i took my tube out he's got he gets my mute out when he gets it out he throws it on the ground it's still dented like because it's made of like rubber there's like a dent in the rubber now from that for the, mute, like, the mute yeah and i'm like that's my property man mm-hmm. i'm just like still trying to keep it calm mm-hmm. and he's just like you're an idiot and i'm like pardon like i'm the one who's staying calm over this whole situation <laughs> And he's like, why did you do this? And I was just like, I need to. Like, this is normally a thing. And he's like up in my face, like getting very mad at me. And I'm just like, okay. And then at this point, his supervisor comes over, takes him away because he clearly he has some larger issues happening in mm-hmm. his life that he is attributing to me. And then they like, for some reason, like put me off to the side for a little while. I'm waiting. I normally get to the airport, just to give you an idea, I normally get to the airport four hours early or not four hours early. Maybe I leave three hours early. So I get to the airport with two and a half hours before my flight so that this whole thing can take two hours. At this point, it's 30 minutes before my flight. (laughs) They get through the whole thing. I'm running to my gate. And of course, it's at the other end of the terminal. I'm running with my 50-pound tube on my back. And this my is backpack. Home Alone 1. This We're- is Home Alone 1. Yeah, literally. <laughs> and by the time I get to the gate, they've closed the doors. No. So I missed my flight because of TSA. I've never had that happen before. Um, but this definitely happened. So, I mean, I have... And I just have several instances where the tuba that is under the plane, I get it back and there's... You know, the bell is totally dented or... I've seen some really awful things happen and I've seen other instrumentalists, particularly, you know, viola players or cello players or bass players or whatever that have been forced to put their instruments under the plane that just come back and it's destroyed. Cause like, yours gets dented. Theirs can actually, they're made of wood. So yeah. They can break and shatter. Right. Totally. I can show you some pictures later on. It's just devastating. But, um, and I've seen people's instruments that are sort of dented beyond repair. It just makes sense to buy a new instrument. Uh, or to have insurance claim it or claim it on insurance rather. Um, but you know, like I said, I've, I've had some bad denting situations and you know, times when I've just like yelled at people. Um, but every time I go to the airport, it's very much like Jesus take the wheel, terrible situations, but you know, I wouldn't get to go to all the cool places that I go to without this instrument. So every time that something crappy happens, I'm just like, okay, like you're getting to go to all these cool cities and this instrument is literally the reason why you are mm-hmm. going to all these cool cities. You live in Miami Beach. Mm-hmm. Like you can deal with some people being crappy to you. So how did you end up getting to Miami Beach? So you studied in, at Michigan, did your master's for two years. Um, how did you end up in Miami? How did you find out about the program in Miami? Okay, so at the end of my uh, master's program at Michigan... I was applying for PhD programs um, and PhD programs are sort of difficult to come by because, you know, you have to find schools that have open spots because most of the time, like a particular school will only take one doctoral tuba student and there has to be funding available. Mm-hmm. And the schools that I applied to either had one of those two things or none of those two things. And a student is five years, right? Is that a uh, good, like for a for PhD? Three. Three? three to four. So if there's one person in the slot, they're in the slot for three to four years. Yeah. 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 Okay. 
and just like I said, I applied to a couple schools, like either there was no money or there wasn't a spot and it was looking like I was going to have to like move home and like live in our parents' basement, which is like fine. But, um, in order to keep my career going, you sort of need to, and to stay in the country, I sort of needed to keep in school. So I had subbed with this orchestra in Miami. It's called the new world symphony. And it's sort of like a middle ground between the school and a professional orchestra. Everybody in the orchestra is sort of out of conservatory programs. Most people have master's degrees and it's a fellowship program, basically where you get to hang out for three years, practice your butt off and get lessons from some of the best people in the field. And all the while live for free and get paid. It's like a dream come true. And I don't want you to understate it. They take the best people from the world. It is not just, nor- it's mostly North America, but there are people from outside North America too, right? Yeah, there's a um, there's a couple other, there's a Taiwanese girl in the orchestra, there's a Puerto Rican guy in the orchestra. Um, uh, and it's very competitive. You know, it's sort of the similar situation as this doctoral program. Like, there's only one tuba spot, so if somebody stays there for three years, it's only open every three years. And what happened was the girl who was in it before me, um, she got a job sort of towards the end of the year and the spot wasn't supposed to be open because she was in her second year. So I had been subbing with them. I took the audition. I didn't know the spot was going to be open. And then they're like, would you like to join this orchestra? And this is like me choosing between parents' basement or living for free in Miami beach with a wonderful program with a wonderful program. So like obviously going to move down to Miami <laughs> beach like, yeah. or like, no, I mean, obviously going to move into my parents' basement, like definitely. <laughs> um, so it's, it's really wonderful. And the, the real advantage with me being a tuba player is just that because there's only one per orchestra, um, orchestral opportunities are very hard to come by. So being sort of steeped in this for three years, I've played all this music, been able to do this so much. And I've, as a result, I feel like I have sort of a leg up over all these other tuba players who are just sort of in school. So wonderful program. I owe all of, I would say (laughs) the success that I've had, um, to this, this, uh, program. You've obviously developed a lot as a musician in your time with new world. Uh, what would you say that some of the lessons you've taken, because I know your regimen has changed a lot in that you add yoga and you now think that nutrition is very important. And I don't think those are things that you may have necessarily done when you were at Michigan. Yeah, I generally exercise every day. I and I add sort of elements of yoga to my daily routine. I um, It's really affected my breathing because yogic breathing is something that is very intentional and breathing intentionally is something that is really important when it comes to playing a musical instrument. Um, I'm also vegetarian. I try to be vegan a lot. My girlfriend's vegan and we like being vegan. Um, but I, yeah, I just, I think that having a healthy body is really important because you only have one body and playing a musical instrument is a very physical thing. If your body isn't feeling good, then you know, most of the time the sounds coming out of your instrument are probably not going to be very good. Um, so I, yeah, I just try to take care of my body because nobody else is going to take care of it. Um, so that's really important. And also like, because everybody on South beach is the hottest person ever. If you don't have self-esteem issues before you get to South beach, you will definitely have self-esteem issues when you get to South beach. Somebody told me that one time and I think it's hilarious <laughs> because it's so true. Um, a lot every- of celebrities spend their time there too, right? Everybody's so hot. Like everybody <laughs> is so hot. You walk by people on the street and you're like, how do you get this hot? Like, cause it's hot here. <laughs> Temperature. I get What's it. up with airline food? I mean, <laughs> what is up with airline food? Oh, is that actually the joke? Is, is that the joke with airline food? I think so. Is what is up in that side? What is voice. up? <laughs> what is up with the airline food? What is up with airline? Is that your Seinfeld base? Yeah. <laughs> um. So you've talked about the weather and kind of the the people uh, going from Michigan and London, Ontario to Miami, the United States. Um, what's been other big changes you have to adjust to? Well, Miami like just doesn't feel like a real place really because 
It doesn't, honestly, because like, you know, I feel like most of the people that live there are tourists or people that aren't there um, year round. Yeah, or who weren't born there. So the cultural makeup is very interesting. Um, the New World Symphony does this really interesting thing where they actually broadcast the concerts. And you've seen these these wallcast concerts. They broadcast concerts on the side of the wall. They're called wallcast, and they're free. So basically, you can sit on the front lawn of where our orchestra plays and like look at a 400-foot-tall screen and 4k cameras capturing the concert from the inside outside and they collect data from the people who go to these concerts and 80 percent of the people who go to those concerts have a never been to a classical music concert before and b english isn't their first language 60 percent of the people who live on south beach are native hispanics um, so it's, it's a really, is a huge culture shock for me. Cause like I had to learn Spanish to get around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know French and French is like sort of similar to Spanish, but that was really interesting for me. You took uh, high school Spanish too, right? Yeah. Like one year. So I know like, hola and <laughs> donde esta el baño. Mm-hmm. Where's the bathroom? Yep. You know that. Donde es el queso? Where's the cheese? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Donde esta el cerveza? That was the thing. Where is the beer? Quieres comida? I don't know that one. Quieres? Quieres? Isn't that I want? I want... I want food, yeah. Comida. <laughs> okay. yeah. Comida. Quieres comida? Quieres comida? Donde esta el comida? So... En la restaurante. You've been at New World now for... This is your third year. Yes. Uh, you wrap up in April yeah, um, and you usually do festivals during the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, you've played with some incredible people. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Baptiste, mm-hmm. you could, you could name a list of people. Mm-hmm. Um, what's next for you? Um, you're talking about like this summer, the summer and beyond. Um, so this summer I'm coaching uh, for a couple of weeks. I'm coaching the national youth orchestra of the United States. For a couple of weeks. Where's that? Um, it's going to be in New York, uh, upstate New York for a little while and then Miami, which will be really fun. Um, and then otherwise sort of just taking some auditions and taking some time off. I've been traveling out this year, so I'm really excited to like maybe just practice um, because, you know, having some time off to just like get better at my instrument is sort of uh, something that I don't really get to do very often anymore because I'm always sort of running around. Mm-hmm. So that's what I want to do. Um, yeah, I'm just sort of still evaluating my options. Final question. So you're in the creative fields and you particularly with the tuba, you're playing an instrument where your chances of getting a job are even smaller than everyone else's chances. Correct. Thanks for reminding me. What advice do you have for people that are trying to chase a dream or chase after something they really want? especially when it's incredibly difficult. Honestly, I just think it's a matter of sort of what we talked about before with when you're faced with rejection, trying to spin it in a way that is positive. So for example, when somebody has been like, you're not good enough to do this. I'm like, well, let me figure out why I'm not good enough for this. And I just, I've been operating under the assumption for a long time that if I am able emotionally, physically, financially to keep this up for as long as I can sooner or later, it's going to hit because sooner or later there won't be anyone who is better than me left. Um, so I sort of always operate under that assumption. And I also just think about how much I've put into it. There have been people who in the past have told me, that I can't do this. Um, and at the time that got me down, especially when it was people who I thought were in my corner before. Um, but then I think about the times where it's been really reaffirming and especially, you know, over the past couple months, I've had some situations that have felt like major setbacks. Um, especially just, you know, coming close to getting jobs or what have you. And I've just really either wanted to throw my tube against the wall or let it on fire and 
because I don't know if you can really successfully light metal on fire. At least, I mean, I would need like a flamethrower or something. Mm-hmm. I would need to throw it against the wall and I don't want to do that. Um, and then, you know, recently I've sort of realized that there are more people on your side and in your corner than you realize. Like, for example, I was talking to our parents like really recently and we were talking about sort of some situations that have happened to me in the past couple months where, like I said, I've come very close to getting a job and it in an orchestra and it just didn't materialize. Like final two and you just don't get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's been sort of, uh, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, it's been debilitating. Um, and, you know, you can look for so many different answers as to why something doesn't work out and you can try to find every stone and turn over every stone and be like is it under here is the reason why i didn't get this under here but sometimes there isn't really a reason and i think the important thing is just to keep going and just keep swimming is like a very important saying that has got me through some very difficult times times when i just don't want to really continue and going back to the whole there are people in your corner when you don't even know it thing like our parents i was talking to them very recently and i was just like what if i just like don't do this anymore like what if i just like start something new they're like you can't do that you have to do this and i'm like what Like, I didn't know that you were that passionate about me still doing this. And they're like, oh yeah, you have to. You can't do anything else. And they're not saying you can't do anything else, but they're like, you have something to say. You have something to contribute to this world in this medium. Mm -hmm. And that was really motivating for me. Um, And just having teachers get in touch with me and being like, you can't stop. Like, you need to keep going. Everyone's saying that you have to win this war of attrition because that's really all it is. Yeah. It's either you're going to succeed or you're going to quit. And there's really no middle, right? Yeah. And it may take you a long time. Someone told me recently that Sam Walton, he's the CEO of Walmart. Yeah. yeah. He didn't start Walmart until he was 46. Mm -hmm. He probably didn't give up on his dream when he was 30 or 35. And that's why he's doing it now. Yeah. I just find like the times that I've had the most difficulty or the times that I've been feeling like I've been facing a lot of adversity are probably the times that I'm very close to a major point of growth. Like if I'm like getting really frustrated with myself in the practice room or um, just like frustrated about a certain aspect of my playing, I'm like probably doing really well and it's just important to like look at the macro in that sense like if i'm not able to play something stupid like just the fact that i'm trying to fix that one thing is like way better than anything else does that make sense yeah yeah i just think it's important to keep going and you know the only person that is ever going to throw in the towel is you. And if you keep going, like I said, sooner or later, it's going to hit. Um, but that being said, happiness can exist in many different forms. You know, I would very much like to have a professional job in a full-time orchestra, but if that doesn't happen for whatever reason, that's okay. Because I will at least know at the end of the day that I will have tried. Mm -hmm. And there are other things in life that make me happy. I like yoga. I like eating. I like my girlfriend a lot. And this is just one thing that I would like to do. But I think it might take me a little while to recalibrate if I didn't want to do this. But um, like I said, I just think it's important to... um, just be conscious of the fact that you can be happy in a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to be one specific thing that makes you happy. 
And that's our show. A big thank you to Jarrett McCourt. He is the principal tuba at the New World Symphony in Miami, Florida. To find out more about the New World Symphony, check out nws.edu. If you want to follow the work that Jarrett does, you can check out his website at jarrettmccourt.com. J-A-R-R-E-T-T-M-C-C-O-U-R-T. Or follow him on Instagram at Jarrett McCourt. He is also a photographer and posts his photos on Instagram at Photography. The two tracks that you heard in the episode today are Highway 26 by Foxheart Fishman and How Deep Is Down by Baby God. If you want to follow me on social media, you can do so at Jacob McCourt. And to find all of the episodes of No Coaster Needed, you can go to nocoasterneeded.com or your favorite podcasting service. Thanks for listening. <laughs>